0: Welcome. Welcome back to Love's Labour's Watched, everyone. Your favourite pop culture, generally women-focused podcast. How are you? I am good. How are you, Francesca?
1: I am good too. Yeah, excited to be back and we've got a whole mm-hmm. bunch of things on the table to discuss today, which we're really excited
0: about. We also yeah. have a brand new logo. Yes, we do. That's very exciting to talk about. So, uh, Francesca, do you want to kind of take us through uh, A, what the logo is and B, why it's changing and see what wonderful artists designed it for us? Yeah. So
1: as you know, we've had the same podcast logo for the whole time we've been doing this podcast. It's very fun and we've always enjoyed it, but we felt that it was time to move on in terms of having a logo that more accurately reflected the Mm. diverse range of content that we discuss, whether that's books Mm. or films or TV and across genres. And Mm so we commissioned a artist friend of ours, Alex Eggy. To bring something magical to life, which she did. And we have this lovely new pink logo, mm-hmm. which should be eye catching and easy for you to find in your podcast library. So we hope you enjoy that. And a big thank you to Alex for making that happen.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much to Alex. It's very exciting. We made our logo, what, four years ago, maybe oh, at this point? Like longer, but I maybe, think. And it, and it comes from a very funny memory of ours. We did a silly photo shoot at the um wonderful National Museum of Scotland um, up in Edinburgh, which if you're ever in Edinburgh, go and visit. It's fantastic. We very much enjoyed the look of our logo. We did it when we were first very excited about making a podcast. Given that we are a different podcast now, we thought that it'd be good to have a a logo and and an avatar, really, I suppose, as they still call it, uh, which is more reflective of our brand and also more reflective of the wonderful talent that we bring on the show and we have around us.
1: Today, we have another brilliant author. We're speaking to Rosanna Amaka about her debut novel, The Book of Echoes. Rosanna Mm -hmm. grew up in South London. She's of African and Caribbean heritage. And she wanted to write a book that reflected the Brixton community that she grew up in. Brixton is an area of South London. And Mm. as she tells us in the interview, she actually wrote this book 20 years ago and has been fighting to get it published ever since. And now it's finally in the bookshops. It actually came out last year mid-pandemic, which is obviously its own difficult situation. Mm, um, but yeah. now obviously we're, you know, able to go into bookstores again. The book is now in paperback, and Rosanna is here to tell us all about it. So we were delighted to speak to her. We'll let Rosanna tell you a bit more about the plot. Yeah. But essentially mm-hmm. it's a story of two people's lives connecting, one of them living in Brixton and one of them living in Nigeria. In the 80s and 90s. And then it's, yeah, sort of about these two intersecting lives. So it's a really beautiful really moving read and we can't wait to discuss
0: that and afterwards um so you know we always have our chatty section after we've had our guest on the show today we're going to be talking about Loki the tv show that has been out on Disney plus and we're also going to be talking about Black Widow which has come into cinemas in early July after a year's delay so both of them I think really fit our criteria of being kind of like forward thinking and kind of feminist but also I think particularly in terms of Loki it does what we love which is to play with the genre of tv mm-hmm. and also add quite a lot to the marvel universe both of them do that in many ways and also featuring two of our faves tom hiddleston and florence Pugh. so there's a lot yeah. to talk about so we'll come back to that but for now let's get into the interview with rosanna
2: the book of echoes um, is narrated by an enslaved african woman Who is roaming the world trying to find her children. And in the process of trying to find her children, she comes across Michael, who is in Brixton, and Ngozi, who is in Nigeria. And she basically follows their story and what happens to them.
1: We understand that 20 years passed between you first beginning writing the novel and then its publication last year. We wonder if you could speak a bit about that writing process and if and how the novel progressed and changed and developed during that period.
2: Yep. Yeah, I started to write the Book of Echoes over 20 years ago. And at the time I was working in in Scotland and um, I challenged myself to actually um, write the book. Um, I didn't, I actually finished the book, the first draft in six six months but it took 20 years to redraft re-edit um and keep sending it out and 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 reorganizing it before actually getting public um published in 2020 so um yes it's been a a long journey
0: yeah absolutely that's um a massive amount of perseverance as well in terms of the uh, the breadth of the project and you know um sticking with it and working with it for so long. That's really awesome. And, um, yeah, so you noted before that the novel itself is narrated by the spirit of an enslaved African woman, um, and she sort of um, observes how society has changed and how it also has not changed since her death yeah. over 200 years before. Uh, and how did this come about? How did you decide on having this woman being your narrator um, and kind of matching her experience with the more modern-day experience in the 80s? Okay, well...
2: When I start when I I realized that I actually write a level um write a novel on different levels. So when I wrote the first draft, it was more um on the level of interact with the actual story, interacting with whatever was coming out, interacting with the with Michael, interacting with in my head. <laughs> I, I'm a bit crazy, I'm afraid, but yeah, in my head, I was um interacting with Michael, trying to tell him not to do things and and um, interacting with Ngozi. But the first part, the first part of the story that came out was Michael's story. Um, And that's the first part that I started to write. And then I started to write um, Ngozi's story. And um, in the process of that, then the narrator came in and actually said, actually, I want to take over and tell their story, but also tell my story so that's how the narrator came into it but as i said i write on different levels so i write on a level where i actually believe that these characters exist and they're real human beings to me but then there's the stepping back after you've written it and starting to pull the threads together of like actually what have you written here and what what is it about and um what are the threads throughout the novel so there's the yeah so it's written on a spiritual level written on um, an artistic level um, written on coming from a historical aspect of the the novel looking at, at people's lives Um, how history affects people, Um, it it goes into poverty, racism, so many things. But you would expect that to happen if you are following a story over a 20-year period as well. So there's lots of things that happen to human beings within a 20-year period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you say, it's such a rich and layered novel as a result. And speaking of the themes and the narrator there's a part in the novel where your narrator observes some London tourists who are gathered around a statue of a colonizer and she comments their history has erased us so your novel Mm -hmm. was published last year which was a year in which there was a reckoning with how we talk about British history and who we have statues of as well and so We wondered if you would be able to speak a bit on your inclusion of that theme in the novel and what it was like releasing the book while those conversations were happening, particularly last year.
2: Yeah, well, that part was written quite a number of years ago. <laughs> and um, how it came about is that, um, I, I, I don't know if you, everybody's heard of Canary Wharf. Um, and on that site, um, I think there's the West India Keys, and on before West India Keys was the West India docks where the slave ships used to come in and um, talking about the the type there's a it's called the book of echoes and in just some information when I was doing the research I found out that the last slave ship that left that docks was also called the echo which just just by coincidence, yeah. (laughs) Um, But anyway, going back to the question that you you asked me, so um, what happened is that um, on that site is the London Dockland Museum, and in the London Dockland Museum is, um, there's the London slate, it goes through the history of slavery in that dock. So I used to go to that um, museum and I found that museum extremely interesting. On the wall, it also charts some of the ships that went um, from, from the docklands to West Africa and where the sums of the slaves were, were um, dropped off as well. So I also um, so the the beginning of the novel starts in the West India Docks, and um, after visiting that museum, I sat down, and I actually heard, um, started to hear the sounds that would have happened at that time, started to um, envision the um, the narrator, um, what was happening to her um and um yeah and then the statue is actually there as well so I also wrote that into the book and then coming forward to what's happened in the last year um it's it just seems like it's echoing and echoing and echoing again yeah so um yeah I don't know if I answered your question
1: yeah no I think um it's it's really interesting what you were saying about um the the title um which I think kind of leads quite nicely in, into our next question.
0: Uh, on the side note, uh, I teach in an East London school, so the London Docklands Museum and the History of Slavery is something which is mm-hmm. uh, in our curriculum, and it's really, yeah, really Please really take from there. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely take,
2: yeah, it's a good trip for because I've taken several people to that museum and um, it's very interesting. It opens discussion. Um, it, it's, it's a very, very good museum to take, particularly children um, mm-hmm. to take. It's obviously it's harrowing, but it's good for them to learn what happened in the past and also on their doorstep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's yeah, it's absolutely interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, on that um, you know, on that theme, you know, that as you've noted already, the novel does explore how the effects of history can reverberate through the generations from the yeah. slave woman 200 years before and then the idea is Ngozi and Michael's story does go back through history as well and you're inspired yeah. by history um and yeah the book of echoes you already mentioned how it, it kind of like coincidentally linked with a slave ship but uh where else did that title come from um and kind of what do you hope readers will take away maybe on first glance and then after reading from the title itself
2: okay well the title came back originally it was called uh, it was it had a death totally different title and the title came about it was brought to me by my um by my agent who said um who wanted to rename it and she came with the book of echoes and i thought about it and i thought actually this this title actually reflects the book and also finding out that the Last one of the last slave ships that left the Docklands was called the Echo as well. It all tied in.
1: Yeah, it's such an evocative title as well, I think. Um, mm. Yeah, and um, we also wanted to ask you, so the novel begins in the early 80s and ends in the 90s or at least the main focus of the novel does Um, and through that narrative you're sort of tracking how Nigeria where Ngozi is from and South London where Michael is from has changed in that period and there's specifically a focus on the changing landscape of Brixton in South London and you've said before that the novel is a love letter to the community you grew up in so we wondered first of all how did you settle on the sort of time frame of the 80s and 90s um and also what it was like bringing your neighborhood to life on the page
2: well I think well I'm of an age now that I'm I'm you know I'm not not young anymore so I it was a a partly wanting to record some of the because at the present moment I think those that grew up in Brixton have seen so many changes and there's been so many um, families that used to live in the area that have either moved out or um, older generation that have passed away so it was a way of recording their presence within that area so that was and then when I thought about recording that presence within that area there was also things about Nigeria that I remembered because I spent a few years in Nigeria as a child that I wanted to also record within Ngozi's story as well just you know I'm I'm not going to be here forever and um, yeah it's important that whatever stories are passed on to me from my parents hopefully I can pass them on while I'm still alive and whoever wants to pass it on from there.
0: Yeah, and I think that really reverberates with that idea about, you know, the generations and then the the search for the slave woman finding kind of where the stories of her children led. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a big thing that I found and we found in the novel was, you know, Ngozi and Michael's journeys are kind of really impacted by what society was like. Back then, both in London and in Nigeria, um, for them as you know, young people, um, as young Black people, and from poor backgrounds as well, um, and you know these challenges, you know, relating to, you know, I think race and gender and um, social change and you know racial ideas and moving countries, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I do feel that uh, today, this kind of challenges that Ngozi and Michael face are kind of similar or to change challenges that you know young black men and women in the same countries face as well or have they kind of evolved or been changed by the actual change you've seen in these communities as well
2: well it, it's difficult to say because every time I think we've moved forward yeah. something happens and I realise that actually we've moved forward but backwards so we keep moving forward but backwards so things have changed but not as as much as um for for instance, as I said, I wrote this this book over twenty years ago, and the Brixton riot happened. There was um, death in police custody. There was all the things that were happening then, and then it was published in 2020. Then we have um, the um, the George Floyd dying. Um, so it just seems to be so. There are improvements, but there's still echoes. But hopefully, with echoes, they keep fading as it repeats that's my hope
1: (laughs) yeah there's that really powerful bit in the novel where when Marcia is kind of um, who's Michael's sister and she's reflecting on kind of what you were saying just there really of like how it can sometimes feel that we haven't made progress but also hopefully in some ways we have Um, and speaking of of Marcia she was one of my favorite characters and in both in Gotzi and Michael's world there are these really richly drawn interesting supporting characters who you find yourself just as invested in um what was it like building both their respective worlds and their their friendship groups and their families and were there characters that you you kind of knew needed to be in it from the beginning or did they sort of pop up pop up as you went along yeah what was that process like
2: it was, they all popped up as I went along, because as I said, I started off with um, Michael, and um, as I started to, um, as I started to think about his story, in fact, going back to your original question, you were asking me um, why, why. Um, when I started why I started I think you asked me why I started a novel um, and I said that I was in um, Aberdeen at the time but also at the time there was a lot of um, thing things in the news about statistics and quite negative statistics about people of colour so I think that at the time when I sat down it was also to address some of those statistics as well, that you might, you, that statistics are only a snapshot. It doesn't tell you the whole journey of a, of a person. So, and um, I wanted it, I wanted people not to be um, tied up in so-called, you know, you always hear about um, negative statistics, but that doesn't actually tell you where that person will end up. It just tells you where they are at that present moment, if you understand. If you, it can be used in a positive way in terms of say, as a framework of this is where we are and where do we need to be? But if it's, if it's used as this is the whole story, then there's some, yeah, I wanted to address that point.
0: Yeah absolutely and then you have all the you know shaping the main characters as beyond just statistics but as you know the people all around them we get to meet as well and I think uh, you know obviously the book of echoes if you know if you look on the back it talks about the you know the journey of Michael and Ngozi to sort of meet each other um yeah it's one of the core parts of the novel and I think also um you know Francesca's mentioned already you know Marcia and then her reflection she goes through as well and I think that one of the key themes of the novel uh, we found was this idea about family you know whether it be chosen or not chosen um, and alongside that redemption and then love as well Um, I wanted to speak a bit about that uh, and hope too and for you why was that the core part of the novel why was that family and that redemption something that both characters kind of came back to as did others
2: it was important because when I first started to write the book there weren't very many books around that were Positive. So, one, I had at the time lots of um, things on the news uh, around that were talking that were very negative about, um, you know, talking about statistics about black people, and it was extremely negative. Two, I there was books around that just were not very um, positive. So, therefore, it was important. And then, on the other hand, my experience of growing up in the community is that there were positive stories and there were people that despite the hardships, despite what was happening, that they were able, that they made it through. Um, And part of that was because of love, because of support, because of the people that they had around them. So it was important for me to tell that story.
1: Yeah, no, I think um, I, I enjoyed some of the supporting characters so much that I was sort of hoping you might revisit them in future work and I'm not sure if you have any future work that you could discuss with us right now but we're certainly excited to you know read what you produce next thank you and we wanted to ask and we always ask this of our guests um whether there's you know any books or tv or film or podcasts or you know anything that you've enjoyed recently or even like an old favorite that you've revisited that you'd like to recommend to us um, or and to our listeners as well
2: Oh, gosh, there's there's so many good books and there's so many great writers out there Um, that more. And I'm always late to the party. I I feel like I'm the slowest person on earth, (laughs) do everything so slowly. Um, But one of the more recent books I read with um, a book club, which I'm sure everybody else has read, is um, uh, Eleanor Oliphant.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I read that a couple years ago.
2: Yeah, I I, absolutely that was so initially you start off laughing and then by the end of it, you're kind of like, oh, my God, (laughs) what am I reading? So, yeah. So I really enjoyed that recently. Um, At the present moment, I'm reading Jamel Brinkley, A Lucky Man, which is a collection of short stories Um, and um, I'm also reading quite a collection of classic African novels as well, written by African authors.
1: Oh, that's great! Oh, cool.
0: Cool. What's mm-hmm. that called?
2: Yeah, um, one of them at the present moment
0: is called "A Blade Among the Boys" by Honora Beccu. We love to hear what authors are reading and what they're or what they're going to want to share because it's really a not a great part of something that we can share with listeners as well. Hand on.
1: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, well. Rosanna, thank you so much um, for your time today. Um as a just like a final point, was there anything else that you wanted to say or wanted to touch on that we've not spoken about in the novel in the novel? Because this hasn't been a novel in the podcast. Yeah, I
2: just wanted <laughs> to say that ab- apart from what's going on above Ngozi and Michael, the actual story of Ngozi and Michael, I absolutely love them. <laughs> yeah. Um I believe that they are they are somewhere in South London. <laughs> and um if I knew what we find knew knew their address I'd go and stalk them but mm. <laughs> but I absolutely love them and I think that the story between them is is beautiful and I hope people read them and read about them and, and fall in love with them as much as I did so I also wanted people to know that the book is about love hope mm-hmm. and and time healing all
1: Oh yeah I, lo- I love that and I, I totally ag- I mean agree with you about feeling like they're real and I think you you have created these, these this wonderful cast of characters that I think we both really enjoyed following so thank you so much and thank you for your time today yeah. as well.
0: Yeah. We always yeah, we always have a great time with authors on the podcast there's never. I know uh, I've listened we, to some of them and they you know that
2: they, they sound fantastic. Yeah. I could I'm I'm going to be listening from now on. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. Yeah, I think it's just it's so fascinating to hear about everyone's process yeah. and um yeah, so no thanks again. All right, bye now.
0: Bye. <laughs> bye, thank you. Bye. <laughs> So thank you so much uh, to Rosanna for coming on the show to chat to us. Um, Book of Echoes is out
1: now. Yes, thank you so much to Rosanna. It was wonderful to speak to her. Um, Before we discuss a bit about our thoughts on the book, Helena, I know you had a quick clarification that you wanted to make about
0: something from the interview. And Rosanna mentioned the slave ship Echo, which um, she noted was the last ship to leave the London Docklands. Actually, the Echo was one of the earlier ships to do so. Right. Thank you for clarifying that. And thank you to Rosanna who followed
1: up our interview with an email just letting us know about that fact. Um, And Helena, I understand when you were looking into this, you found another story about a different slave ship that was also called Echo. Is that right?
0: While um, the slave trade itself was made legal on the British Empire in 1833 and slavery was made legal actually even earlier than that in 1807, there was a slave ship named the slave ship Echo that was found to be transporting slaves between the Africas and the Americas uh, in the late 1850s and actually the people who were involved on that ship, the slave traders, were put on trial in the US. So um slave ship Echo um, does actually have an interesting past and You know the name book of echoes does have a link to the um slave trading past um so yeah that's quite interesting thank you to rosanna again for bringing her expertise and her knowledge uh, about her book and also about the history of the slave trade and slavery particularly in connection to the british empire um and the kind of migrant communities that have come up in britain in the last you know 100 years um which her novel actually deals with
1: yeah As Rosanna discussed in the interview, The Book of Echoes is mostly set in the 1980s and the 1990s, but it is narrated by the spirit of an enslaved African woman. And in her narration, she will sometimes comment on the situations that the main characters, Michael and Ngotzi are in that remind the narrator of the experiences that she had. And so through this narrative, we really see how echoes of the transatlantic slave trade and the British Empire remain in both the UK and in Nigeria and across the world. As a young black man in Brixton, Michael experiences racism and he is just fighting for a better life for his family. And in Godsey, she also fights against a society that wants to essentially put her in a box and constrain her. But the Book of Echoes also celebrates the Brixton community that Michael's part of and the people who rally together to uplift one another. And as Rosanna discussed in the interview, this area of South London has changed considerably over the past few decades. And the Book of Echoes really is a celebration of Brixton's Afro-Caribbean heritage and community. As we mentioned, the Book of Echoes is about this idea of history being ever-present and not static and having these reverberating after-effects. The novel also interrogates the question of who gets memorialised in history and why, and by whom. And in turn, who gets to tell stories from the past? So by making the narrator an enslaved African woman, a figure who was often silenced by history, Rosanna is claiming back this story in a really powerful way. As we spoke about with Rosanna, this idea of decolonising British history has become more prevalent over the past year. But it's a conversation that predates 2020. The fact that Rosanna has been writing this novel for two decades only underlines this. And speaking of, Rosanna's journey to publication is really interesting and really inspiring. She worked on this book for two decades and campaigned to get it published. It's really great to see a debut novel by someone who's slightly older. I think the publishing industry, like so many industries, can get very excited about youth but it's really cool to see someone work on a passion project for so long and then get it published. Um, Helena, I wonder what your take on this is.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think what we'd expect to see from a lot of debut authors nowadays is they tend to be younger. Um, and there's always been a problem with it being debut authors and uh, the lists of publishing houses being diverse beyond just you know white middle-class people. And that applies to... There being a lack of kind of working class authors, people of colour, that kind of thing. So from that perspective, Rosanna truly has a really interesting perspective to give as a woman of colour, but also as an author who, as she said, has been working on her novel for 20 years and trying to get it published. And she has, she's, as we've noted, you know, she taps into a time long past. You know, her novel is set majority in the 80s and the 90s in London. And I think that perspective is really important because the worst thing we can do as readers and as people who publish books you know that industry can do is to prioritize one viewpoint the whole point about novels they should be accessible to everyone and maybe people should be able to see themselves in every novel it shouldn't just be so people should be able to see themselves in a novel not every novel because otherwise what's the point Right. So I think that's one really important thing that came out to me in talking to Rosanna about her book um, in that she write, you know, what she's saying is really important and the perspective she has to give is really exciting. And I also think it's so great to see somebody working so hard to get their novel published and actually really believing in it so much and then getting it done, spending 20 years on it, getting it done, getting the book out there, getting the recognition they deserve for the work that they've done. Um, so I was really happy to see that. As well. And I think from reading the book and from talking to Rosanna about it, what really comes out to me is that she has a really important perspective. It's hard to find. Um, a novel kind of that blends the really important key themes we talked about with the skill that Rosanna has in bringing it from that slave woman's perspective uh, it kind of reminds me of a book called False Light* actually by uh, author KJ Whitaker. it was released a few years ago as far as I was aware and I got it in a book subscription which was really fun um, and it's basically a counter history kind of fiction novel where essentially Duke of Wellington have has lost the battle of waterloo so napoleon has invaded britain um and along with that it's uh you know again steeped in that slave trade history where essentially one of the main characters is the daughter of an ex-slave who is now a kind of like big um naval captain um who basically which basically makes her a target for french spies um so it's a really interesting novel but it sort of takes a really interesting piece of history, as Rosanna does, and then tells it from an interesting new perspective. That really kind of like questions, not questions our established ideas about it, but brings those ideas back, makes us think about them more. And again, so yeah, I was really excited to you know talk to Rosanna and to hear about her book.
1: Yeah, me too. So as you can tell, we really loved the book of echoes, and we were honoured to speak to author Rosanna Amaka all about the book and its themes. We really urge you to check it out and a big thanks again to Rosanna for speaking to us. Now we're going to move on to our next topic. So we're now moving on to, as you mentioned earlier, Helena, speak a bit about two new Marvel properties that we Mm. are, we're really excited to watch and have also been very talked about over the past month or so. The first is the TV series Loki, which has been streaming on Disney Plus for the past several weeks It was yeah. created by Michael Waldron, directed by English director Kate Heron, Who also directed episodes of our Netflix fave Sex Education And yeah. it was a really interesting show Helena, I want you to set it up for our <sighs> listeners who might not have seen it yet Because I know you were particularly excited for this in the lead up to its premiere
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I'm well known for my ability to summarize things. Uh, so, <laughs> so Loki essentially comes off the back of the character Loki, the eponymous Loki. eponymous,
1: yes. I got it. Right, <laughs> you got it right. The eponymous
0: <laughs> Loki. Titular the titular character. Yeah. Um, and essentially Loki's been in the MCU for what, 10 years since thor um he's the brother of thor he's present in norse mythology so he's actually got like a mytho- mythological background and uh, yeah he's the god of mischief right uh, and he's been played by tom hiddleston that entire time um uh, you might say that tom hiddleston's kind of like you know um hollywood career was kind of launched mm-hmm. by uh, being part of thor i have in the character of loki and it's funny, Tom Hiddleston's a very Shakespearean stage actor. You know, a lot of British actors do come from a stage background, as we know. Um, and it's really, in- it's been really interesting to watch him play Loki in this very Shakespearean, Iago-esque, villainy way. So Loki's been a really interesting character. He's stayed in the MCU, hasn't he, for years, because I think of... A, he's an interesting foil for other characters, but B, Tom Hiddleston plays him really nicely and he is very unique as a character. So Loki, the show, actually is his first outing by himself, just like WandaVision is for Wanda, just like um, Falcon the Winter Soldier has been by other characters, just like Black Widow is for Natasha Romanoff. So I think what Marvel's been doing with Loki is has been to break the gap created by coronavirus, but also created by them transferring into what is now their new phase of films through their TV series. Um, Yeah, so Loki finds the character of Loki, uh, basically, his life is taken on a slightly different turn by the event of Endgame, where basically the characters in Endgame go back in time, sort of like change things for the better. um, And Loki's character gets knocked off his path right? He was going to go one way at the end, you know, and then his character gets knocked off his path. Mm. And what we find out is when this happens to you, you get arrested by the Time Variance Authority. Yes. Yeah. Um, which basically the TVA, they're like this very art deco 60s police force um, who operate outside of time, who basically arrest variants, people who stray off their allotted path in time. Um, and then they clear the time path to restore it back to what they call the um supreme timeline basically they want to maintain the singular timeline so loki strays off this timeline and then gets caught up in the after effects of basically the tba who's running the tba who controls the supreme timeline and he meets variants of himself Uh, he also hangs out with Owen Wilson who is a time variant authority officer and it's a really interesting show because it sort of places Loki in a new area where he has to actually come to terms with who he is as a person Mm -hmm. like what is his directed future what is his self-determined future is it actually what he thinks it should be is he really this got this glorious purpose to rule and then eventually die or is it something else and then there's also this element of what is the multiverse? Is there a single timeline? Who's controlling this? How are we going to get to the stage where we have two massive films coming out in the next few years that had to do with a multiverse? Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness and Ant-Man Quantumania. So yeah, in a, you know, not that short of a time, it's basically all of that mushed up in yeah. a show. Um, and so Francesca, I think what's good to ask you going into it, I kind of knew what I was gonna go, you know. Uh, You know, I know about all the theory behind it, but as someone who's rare to be newish to the extended Marvel Universe, uh, how did you enjoy Loki? What did you think of it?
1: Well, I think, as you mentioned, um, Tom Hiddleston in the role of Loki has been very compelling for all these years, and he's been killed off in various points, but he's always returned, to the point where, when I watched Avengers Endgame and he is killed off in the first 15 minutes... I was completely baffled because I was just like, well, surely he's not actually dead, though. Yeah, like, yeah. Even though it's, it seems very final and, you know, it doesn't seem like he's coming back. Um, However, he obviously does in the way in which he just described. Um, And I think that Marvel knew that they have this very compelling, very committed actor in the shape of Tom Hiddleston. Mm. And he is, you know, very popular Um, and has made this character his own. And I think, you know, it's been said that one of the reasons that he has been resurrected all these times is because of just Tom Hiddleston's, you know, performance. Um, So I was excited to see him, you know, lead this series. I thought he would do a great job. And as we talked about, um, I think in our uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier episode, we knew that it was going to be a little bit more kind of um, out there than that series was in terms of conceptually and genre. And You know, you and I both enjoy time travel series. We've obviously spoken about Outlander many a time on the show. And like the first episode very much kind of is a lot of explanations of who the TVA are, what's going on, or at least what they think is going on at that point. Um, But already I was like excited to see this kind of time travel element play out. And actually the show does continue to explore that. And one of the series that it will no doubt remind viewers of is Doctor Who, the British TV
0: series. Yeah, it's actually so true.
1: I think there's a lot of similarities, like, you know, like peak Doctor Who, like David Tennant in like 2006. It's got a lot of similarities, I felt, to that in terms of the dialogue, in terms of like the kind of popping back to randomly see Pompeii in a kind of slightly comedic way. And also the, yeah, the conversations about who you are and and like the different versions of yourself which end up popping up in the case of Loki he meets these other Mm. quote-unquote variants of himself he ends up having a what feels quite romantic certainly important and significant relationship with one of the variants of himself which sounds very weird to say aloud and certainly is quite out there um, as a concept but is. Really compelling. She was a great character. Sylvie, played by Sophia DiMartino. Um, she's great. We've also got Gugu mbatha Raw in a key role and Owen Wilson, yeah. as you mentioned. So I think yeah. for me, I was really excited to see all those components come together. And it also took some twists and turns. I never knew what was coming, which no. I always appreciate from a TV show. It felt like each episode, uh, one of the things you and I talked about actually the other day off air, <laughs> was that <laughs> division is a lot more kind of tonally. Complete and feels like they had a beginning, middle, and end very clearly mapped out because also it was a limited series. Whereas Loki, Mm. they're going to have a second series, and I feel like each episode of Loki is actually very different, which was clearly deliberate. Um, But does create a different kind of viewing experience in that you don't know what you're going to get like one episode they're like trying to escape from this planet which is kind of falling in on itself, another episode is like a very talky kind of sitting in front of one another having a discussion, and then Mm. the final they kind of eschew the typical Marvel like. Bam bam, superhero fight in the sky situation. Uh, yeah. And it's that doesn't really happen, which I appreciated because that is my least favorite part of all of these things. Um yeah. but yeah, so I think they really pushed the boat out and they made it a bit different. And obviously, you know, it's it's still not revolutionary for or, or doing something kind of like crazy, but I think within the con- context of the MCU, it feels like exciting and I just love Tom Hiddleston's performance. I think he finds so much humour in the role, um, which he has done yeah. obviously, previously, but also is yeah. really good at playing those really serious emotional moments. A lot of times yeah. he's playing those like on his own, on the screen, like he's he, he watches all these like, Highlights or say highlights, maybe low lights. But he watches like, like
0: his own his own death in Infinity yeah. War. And I think what I remember thinking about that was he's so Shakespearean, right? Like he loves the gestures mm. and the smile and he he overacts, which is fine because I like it. But I think that when it came to watching his own death, like I have never seen an actor be able to like quite convincingly watch their own death as their character and actually like react yeah I thought he is very very good at at the emotional acting I think in a way that not all Marvel characters are because um they know a lot of them are film actors so it's a bit different for them isn't it
1: yeah that he was in his element in this and like memory or like supposedly he apparently is like a total expert on the character of Loki which I also really appreciate and respect because Mm, I think if you're going to play a character like becoming an expert in them Like you should you know that seems like a great thing to do But clearly it's like it kind of That's his personality as well that he just gets Very into it apparently he did this um Sort of six-hour seminar on Loki for all the cast members who were like new to the to the world. Six-hour seminar. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, Tom Hiddleston. It sounds amazing. I'm like, wouldn't you watch that? Like, I'm sure it's very interesting. Um, it probably goes all into the Norse mythology that you were referring to earlier. But yeah, I think his passion really shines through in this. And yeah, so that that was really enjoyable for me. Um,
0: mm.
1: one of the things we should also touch on is that this was a kind of landmark moment for the MCU in that. His character Loki. So when he meets this other version of himself, I think it's called Sylvie. The <laughs> they have this what feels like a slightly random conversation. Insofar as to me, it didn't seem like the first thing you would speak about when you met like a version of yourself. Like he didn't mm. ask her, where did you were you where were you born? What what have you been up to all these years? He immediately kind of goes into asking her about like romance and relationships, and then both Sylvie and Loki say that they're bisexual and like this is the first time i believe in the mcu a character has identified as anything other than straight is that right
0: yeah even openly i think openly yeah. is the important bit like i'm sure there are characters who uh, you know may internally think oh my character is this my character is that but i think in terms of like specifically saying it yeah
1: right and so kate heron the director she's also bisexual and she tweeted when this, um, when this scene aired, from the moment I joined at Loki Official, it was very important to me and my goal to acknowledge Loki was bisexual. It is a part of who he is and who I am too. I know this is a small step, but I'm happy and heart is so full to say that this is now canon in the MCU. So mm. this was, you know, a significant moment. I think, um, obviously, as the series plays out, because he ends up kind of falling in love with Sylvie or I mean I don't know if we should say it quite like that because I'm not sure if it was love but who knows he that's ends up true, that's true. he ends up having this connection with Sylvie and we've never seen him he's kind of like a megalomaniac character in some of the other movies so he definitely didn't have time to be in love with anyone other than kind no. of himself so I suppose it's sort yeah, of thing. but yeah. anyway um you know he, it's not that he ends up having a relationship with a man which perhaps some people maybe thought was going to happen in the show um but nonetheless uh, I think this is important to acknowledge. What did you think about that moment, Helena?
0: I agree with you, actually. I do think that, you know, I mean, the best we've had from Disney thus far, has there been any openly gay characters in the MCU either? There probably has been, and I just can't remember. Um, But if I can't remember, then... I mean, in terms of, like, relationships and identity and sexuality, it's not particularly something the MCU has ever really tackled or needed to tackle. You know, it's a superhero movie. Who the hero falls in love with is always a bit secondary. So I understand that, like, it's not you know massively high on that list but equally you know when Thor Ragnarok came along we moved from very very run-of-the-mill superhero movies to something a bit more different where identity and 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 character development became more important so I do think it is important for them to have done and until this point all we had in the Disney universe was you know that moment we love to laugh about which is when the character vision the beast sees a man and you're like (laughs) yay I mean yeah And, uh, and, and allow you know and Fair enough. The 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 LGBTQ plus community were a bit like uh, not representation really. So I think it's good that they did this um, because it's explicit. He says, "I like both," and then everyone's like cool, move on. And in terms of it not being a big deal, but it yeah. being mentioned and, and said, yes, that is important. But the other side of it to me is a bit like, well, the, and they also said he was gender fluid, right? But then we've talked about the fact that like gender fluid, it's not the same thing as having a female version of him. <laughs> it's like saying yeah. that female four played by Natalie Portman shows he's gender fluid. And you're like, mm,
1: yeah, that not We really. thought that was a bit misleading, maybe unintentionally yeah. so, but basically before the series began, they had this like um, preview picture of like the file that the TVA had on Loki and it said he was gender fluid. And people, uh, in, you know, understandably interpreted that to mean that he, he as a character, the character we know, Tom Hiddleston playing Loki, identified as gender fluid. Whereas, as you say, actually, it's just that he meets another version of himself who is woman, um, which, yeah, yeah, feels like a little bit like, maybe they still want to explore... All the variants of Loki having an element of gender fluidity But we didn't see that play out in this series that we've just watched
0: And if they thought gender fluidity meant we see a female version of him I don't know if that's what it is I'm thinking it's more the character Like the one played by Tom Hiddleston Would have to explicitly be like I am not, I am gender fluid, I am whatever You know, that's the issue For me there a teeny bit is that They don't really explore his sexuality And they don't really explore his gender, their gender So I just... I mean, that's not a problem I'm not, like, gagging for that But don't say that you're doing it When you're not really doing it And again, the, the Zero Loki Does not have to be a massive exploration Of gender and sexuality Arguably, you might not You might say that's not what A superhero show is for But if you're going to do it They have to kind of uh. But then again, I do also agree With Kate Herron in saying She just say it's small. Good
1: thing is that Because they're going to have A second season it's not like that's the last we're seeing of Loki. I feel like the opposite yeah. is true and that they've kind of, by opening this multiverse, there's all these ways in which we could see his character explored going forward. So yeah, they've actually, we should view it, I think, is that they've opened opened a door that we can now yeah. travel through with them. Um, And also that, you know, one of the great things about this series is that they can explore his character way more than like in any of the movies. Like, yeah. not just his character, but like really any character because by it, by it being a TV show, And by it being much more explicitly about him than, you know, the previous Marvel TV shows that have come out this year, which have all had, you know, other stuff going on too, and other characters too. They've both been like two-handers, whereas this is very much like Mm. it's called Loki. I think that there's scope for like a lot of character exploration, which will be exciting to see going forward. Um, And we should also note that they introduce at the end, spoiler alert, I guess, um, a new big, bad villain for the MCU. Um, which is which very is exciting. Well, very exciting, particularly for fans. I was going to say for Connor, people don't know who Connor is, but you know, your boyfriend <laughs> Connor, who's so my boyfriend well. Connor,
0: who's very excited about um, the return of this person, who I'm not going to spoil who it is. So yeah, overall, uh, a worthy addition to the MCU, I think. And unfortunately for anybody who hasn't watched it, kind of important if you want to understand phase four. Speaking of, Black Widow is finally out after a year of being delayed, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, You can watch it on Disney Premiere if you want, or in cinemas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Starring Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, finally in her own movie, exploring a bit about her past. She's been second fiddle in all these different films, really important to the plot, showing up all the time. And finally, we get a bit of story about where she came from.
1: Yeah, so it was directed by Kate Shortland As we noted earlier, again off-air Loki was directed also by somebody called Kate And they both spelled their name as Kate with a C, fun fact um, I know. yeah. and Kate both women, Shortland, we love to see it Yeah, which is really great to see I think that the MCU are clearly making a concerted effort on that front um, mm. It was also written by Eric Pearson Who was involved in Thor Ragnarok And it's based on a story by Jack Schaefer who wrote WandaVision So that's really interesting to see those kind of people popping up Who I think have been involved in some of our favourite Marvel outputs Over the past couple of years
0: mm, mm, mm-hmm.
1: So Black Widow as you say Explores what happens in Natasha Romanoff aka Black Widow's life During the period in which she's essentially On the run because of yeah. the events Of Captain America Civil War You yeah. don't really have to have seen that film To watch this It's very standalone. alone no. um, And it was interesting, though, that it obviously is set in like the past, quote unquote, but not really the long ago past, literally like four years ago or something. And I think one of the criticisms of this film is the fact that it is probably a long time coming. I mean, Scarlett Johansson has been in these films for so long and has never got a film of her own. And it is a little bit weird to kind of watch it and know what happens to her. Um, It's slightly odd, but I think they cope with that kind of weird situation as best they can by basically having the movie, as we said, be very standalone and focus on her and her journey and this family that she once had, which was basically like she was living in America as part of like a Russian spy family.
0: Yeah, like a sleeper cell is what they call it.
1: Yeah, so the parents, when I say parents, like in quotation marks, they weren't her actual parents, but I guess they, during that time, they were her parents, um, were played by David Harbour, who is Hopper in Stranger Things, and Mm. Rachel Weisz, who obviously we all know and love, and then she has a sister, again, a kind of adopted sister, essentially, um, Florence Pugh, who obviously we adore, and we've spoken about many a time on the podcast, so a really great cast, um, who all kind of reappear in Black Widow's life. And then she's forced to kind of reckon with the idea of family, the idea of identity, and also seek revenge essentially on this guy who is like runs the Black Widow program where he takes these girls and makes them become like kind of fembots. Very disturbing. Yeah, like, very the con- fembot. Yeah. It's really quite, really quite disturbing. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, that's basically it. And again, it's like, you know, it's a more traditional Marvel movie in that it kind of follows it. We've got to get them, there's a lot of action, obviously. Scarlett Johansson is known for her Black Widow action, which they kind of also make fun of in the film, which is quite fun. Like she always poses while she kind of fights people. And Florence Pugh's yeah. character sort of highlights that. Um, yeah but I think it in because of Florence Pugh and because of the cast, I think they managed to make this stand out and make it feel a bit different from um, mm-hmm. some of the other shows or other movies that we've seen before.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing that film really taps into. Interestingly, is it's like women, just women everywhere. There's like two men in it. Three men, three men. There's three men in it. It's about this idea about the these women having their futures taken away from them. They're yeah. taken off the streets, they're turned into killing machines. Um, their agency is taken away by this man. I think it actually taps in this idea about feminine power and sisterhood and also. Basically, like literally like evil villain is a man taking the agency away from the women and using them as his their his personal army. So actually, yeah. in terms of patriarchy, it's actually pretty like on the nose in terms of like female power being taken away from them. And I think what's great about the film is it really highlights your female stunt women. Um Florence Pew's talked a lot about her stunt double, who trained her to do all the stunts and all the mm-hmm. fighting, and um a lot of the women are very out there in terms of, like, fighting each other, throwing each other into walls. There is, like, a character from the comics who turns up and turns out to be actually this, like, hardcore fighting person, you know, who's known for, like, being very difficult to beat and turns out they're a woman. So I think in terms of highlighting just female power, women on the screen, doing the action themselves, the men are kind of secondary. Yeah, I really, really like that about it. You know, I do think the plot was a bit holy, full of holes in lots of ways, um, and also a bit run-of-the-mill for me. You know, secret organization. Uh, you know, but in the end, what they're trying to showcase is not a very complex plot full of like surprises. But actually, the in the, the 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 links between Blackwood and Natasha Romanov and her fam, her her fake family, and thinking about like what was real and what wasn't, and how she became who she is, and how she chose a certain life rather than letting herself get pulled around by people wanting to use her power. But also. Um, thinking about actually yeah those feminine themes rather the highlighting the character rather than hiding her behind all this like you know, plot stuff and I really thought like the script itself for me was really really good but like, I know that David Harbour and Florence Pugh are particularly good comedic actors Florence Pugh basically turned up as Amy from Little <laughs> Women but just as a spies I thought it was so good but in terms of like sisterhood and the motherhood and fatherhood. I feel like the characters, the actors played that really nicely. You know, there's a great scene where they're all sitting around a table, completely aware they're all spies and they all kind of loathe each other, but they also love each other, even though they were mm. a fake family. I think they did that really, really well. And I thought the script was really, really good, actually. It was quite funny, fast paced. Um, and Scarlett Johansson, she's like Tom Hiddleston for me. You know, she has so much history with this character of Black Widow. It is basically just her. So she's really able to tap into the heart That Black Widow has, which is that she wants to save people. You know, she gave up killing people, and now she wants to save people. And you'll see, like in Black Widow, she will do literally anything, up literally, including sacrificing herself to right wrongs that she feels she's been involved in, but also to stop people suffering the way that she has.
1: Yeah, and she was an executive producer on this, so I think Mm. that I think it's very deliberately feminist, and I think very deliberately. Female driven And she obviously Had a had a hand In the story That, that they told And I, I agree with you That I think the script Is really good It's very funny Entertaining It's a proper Like two and a half hour Or two hour Fifteen minute Escapist Fun yeah. Return to cinema So it ticks all the boxes On that front And I think the plot definitely a bit run of the mill. Run of the mill. Um, Ray Winstone plays this evil guy, and like he's fairly forgettable, which is good. I don't think I think he should be really in the role. Yeah, we don't given, need another villain. No, but also because the movie is set right bang in the middle of like all the Thanos drama, they're a bit limited into like they can't have anything happen really in the film that's too significant that it would be weird that they didn't mention it in the future intervening movies. Um, yeah. So I think they're perhaps a bit limited in that sense, and it ends um, like with kind of a link up to like the next film in the series kind of thing. But then there yeah. is a post-credit scene, which is I guess set in the I assume present day, um, yeah, where we I see so. Florence Pugh's character Yelena, who is the yeah kind of sister of of Black Widow, at her grave. Which is a bit as a bit of a side note, I was a bit like you'd be so baffled if you actually didn't know. That's gotta and dies in in, Infinity in or,
0: end game, or, end game War Endgame Yeah
1: because like It sort of feels like Oh a happy ending Oh wait No there's her gravestone Like it's a bit like <laughs> It's a bit weird But I guess they, they had to do it um, And then yeah. they You know Also I suppose it serves As a bit more of a recognition Of like The fact that she did die In that movie And it got a bit lost In all the other drama That was going on there um, And we mm. also see How Yelena is like Obviously mourning her um, And then she is approached By this character Who also pops up In The Falcon and the Winter Soldier Do
0: who, you know what do Louise us. There she yeah. is She's in it now
1: And uh, yeah She basically is told That she has to go kill um, Hawkeye Jeremy Remmer's <laughs> okay. character Which was a bit random as well I but love
0: how they I love how they thought that Like here's the man Who killed your sister I'm like uh, I don't know If that's really true But fine Sure I but mean I guess it was yeah.
1: It was nice to see see Florence Pugh pop up In like what is Like the, na- the, the current times Because there are A whole bunch of characters In this film Who Essentially haven't popped up for like seven years If you view it as like chronological I don't know Um, But I'm sure it'll pop up again Yeah, this post-credit scene is essentially setting up That Florence Pugh is here to stay And we believe she is going to appear In the new Hawkeye TV series Which is coming to Disney Plus In November of this year Also really appreciated as well That like, so she's, she's a millennial She's in her 20s And I think she made the character far more Grounded than Scarlett Johansson Was able to in the in the mm. Earlier movies in which she appeared mm. I say able mm-hmm. to because I think she was limited By the constraints of like Not having massive amount of screen time And also it kind of being a different era In Hollywood where she just has to appear And be like the sexy kind of mysterious Femme fatale um, Yeah. Admittedly also a really great Spy and great fighter But I think Florence Pugh was able to play the her kind of version of Black Widow
0: as far well the massive difference really is like Black Widow turns up in like a booby suit and which then transfers into like a bit less of a booby suit. And then you have Florence <laughs> Pugh who turns up with a jack with a utility jacket full of pockets and it's like look at my pockets. So I think that yeah I mean Florence Pew is entering the world in a in a place where you know In a, in a, a plow followed by Scarlett Johansson Fighting yeah. back against The I'm only sexy thing But Yeah I think it'll be really Interesting to see Her Take on the mantle uh, But also You know Continue the homage To Scarlett Johansson's Character mm-hmm. Who we may Or may not Ever see again Who knows The multiverse is crazy yeah. um, I do think one day In ten years They're going to have a. I don't thing um i mean connor's like no they wouldn't do that and i'm like yes they would They <laughs> yeah, would i agree. bring back all the original actors they would do it they're going to reboot harry potter and they're going to bring back all the original actors for the mcu like trust me they're going to but nonetheless
1: well i think that pretty much wraps us up for today we would love to hear from you if you have watched loki or black widow and have your thoughts that you'd like to share with us in the meantime, we want to thank Rosanna Amaka for coming on the show and speaking to us about her novel, The Book of Echoes, which is available now at all good bookstores in the UK. It's also out on ebook and
0: audiobook if you prefer. As always, we recommend you buy from your local independent bookstore. And please also give our lovely illustrator and logo designer, Alex Eggy a like as well. She is an Eggy a day on instagram which is a n e g g e a d a y i thank you again to you all for listening um if you want to follow us we are at real llw on twitter loves Labor's watched no punctuation all over case on instagram and then loves labor's watched at gmail.com on email <laughs> that's us <Hi>. um yeah <laughs> bye